Hi everyone, I'm Jennifer Owens, also known as Death Doula Jen, the founder of FromButterfliesToAngels.com, where I provide end-of-life services, education, and planning, as well as elder care doula services. I want to start off by saying, if you have an aversion to talking about death, here's your out. Because while some of our discussions are light and simple, sometimes we can get deep. With that being said, this podcast may be triggering to some of you, but it's all about helping you to challenge your views on death and even life itself. Now that we have that out of the way, welcome to my podcast about death and dying. Notice, I didn't say aging and dying because not everyone dies of old age. As I often say, the only fact about life is death. So before I get started teaching you or talking to you about death, I kind of want to explain to you who I am and how I came about the hard work of being a death doula. Some of my friends have started calling me death doula Jen, probably because I always find ways, really creative ways to slide death or at least planning in our conversations. So my path to being a death doula was probably about the same as everyone who comes upon this work. Something happened, someone died, and they were looking to either assist or right something that they felt was wrong while they were experiencing the dying of someone close to them or someone that they knew. For me, it was my daughter, Angelina. My very first pregnancy, I lost around, I'll say about 23 to 24 weeks. When I first found out I was pregnant, I was super excited. You know, all the feelings that moms have when they find out that they're having a baby, I had those feelings times 10. I was told a few years prior to finding out that I was pregnant that I would probably never be able to have children or that it would be pretty difficult for me to have kids because I have what is known as polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. So you can imagine my excitement once I found out I was pregnant. Sadly, my partner did not share that excitement, which kind of made me retreat inside. Instead of moving around and behaving as if I was pregnant, I pretended that I wasn't. I asked the doctor what I could do. The doctor pretty much said, do whatever you've been doing and you'll be fine. I took that literally. So around 23 to 24 weeks, I was at a bowling alley bowling with my ex and his family. And I felt the sensation as if I needed to go to the bathroom. Now, mind you, I had never been pregnant before, so I did not know that this is what it feels like when you are having contractions and it's time to push the baby out. I went to the bathroom and my water broke. I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Nobody here knows I'm pregnant, but my ex, what do I do now? Where do I go? How do I move about this? So I go back and sit down. I didn't know. I sat down until I couldn't sit anymore. And I had to say, hey, I need to go to the hospital. I'm bleeding. I got to the hospital and they basically told me that if the baby was to come right now, there was nothing that could be done. She was way too early. She wasn't ready. I tried to keep her in as long as I could, but eventually I had her way too early, way too soon. Because everyone didn't share my feelings about being pregnant, and I was actually kind of ashamed for being pregnant in the church, unwed, and 
I just didn't have a husband. And that was my biggest hang up. I felt like I was not making people proud. I kind of stayed to myself. I didn't know how to process the things that I was feeling. I was even unsure if I was even a mother or not. I just woke up sad in the inside and moved on like nothing happened. I really don't think I ever fully mourned the loss of that pregnancy. Even to this day, I feel like I haven't really sat with the fact that I lost my child at 23 weeks. When she was born, I was so devastated. I couldn't even hold her. I didn't want to see her. I didn't even know, want to know she was a girl. I just wanted to be in my place of denial and my place of hurt and my place of confusion. I just wanted to sit in my little bubble of sadness. I found out she was a girl because one of the nurses... They put you in a room. I was at a medical, naval medical hospital. They put you in a room with a little sign on the door that lets everybody know that you lost your child. And a bubbly nurse walked in and said, I'm sorry about your loss. I heard she was a girl, right? I had no idea she was a girl, which hurt even more because I was hoping to have a baby girl. That's how I found out. And I was even more sad that I did not take the opportunity to hold my child before she was taken away. So I sat with those feelings and then I tried, as most people do, to move on, move on quickly, swiftly, because this was seriously affecting my life. I remember on Mother's Day, 2009 Mother's Day, I was at church and the pastor said, I would like for all the mothers to stand up and be acknowledged. And I was so confused. I'm like, do I stand? Do I sit? Am I a mother? I don't have a kid. Nobody really knows I was pregnant. What do I do? And I just sat there. I just sat there because was I a mom? Did carrying a baby count? I had nobody to talk to about these feelings. I really had no idea what I was, where I was, who I was, or how I was supposed to move about in this new space of emptiness that I felt. I did a lot of stuff back then to save face. Some save face, some of it was for me, but most of it was for others, not for my well-being. It was it was pretty much for other people because I felt like if I saved face for the others, then that would save face for me. So anyway, that day, I sat it out. I didn't stand up. I didn't feel like a mom. I didn't even know if I could acknowledge being a mom. I didn't know who knew what they knew, or who even told them if they did know. I think maybe the third or fourth Mother's Day in church, I finally decided to stand. I had so many emotions that day. When I finally found the strength to, to stand, I felt depressed. I felt ashamed. I felt lost, hurt, unsure. Like, like you name it. I probably felt it in that moment as I slowly stood up from my seat to acknowledge the fact that I did carry a life. I went to counseling. It helped a little. It taught me ways to redirect my thought process. But there's nothing that can take away the loss that you feel when you lose a child. I ended counseling a little early because I am a United States sailor and I needed to go back out to sea. I was under what is known as limited duty, and I was it was time for me to be assessed. I had done my two tours of limited duty, trying to get my life together, 
and it was time for me to be assessed to see if I was fit for full duty or not. Now, assessment isn't that bad, but if I was declared not fit for full duty, I could have lost my job, literally. I could have been told, all right, the medical department doesn't think that you can be fixed and we're going to send you home. So I chose to lie, actually, at my my last psychological eval and tell them that I was fine and I thought that I could cope. Complete lie. I didn't want to lose my job because that was all I had at the moment. That was my only sure thing. I knew that I could work and I knew that I was good at it. So I couldn't, I couldn't lose that. That was the only solid thing I had. Fast forward to 2013, here I am, pregnant again, same person, excited again, shamed again. Didn't matter to me this time. I was going to live it. I was going to love it. I was going to do whatever. I wasn't going to tell everybody because I know now that I can lose children when I carry them. So I didn't want them celebrating and then having to explain that to them that I don't have a child anymore. And all of the I'm sorry and all the other stuff. I know people mean well when they say it, but. To me, I don't care. And I know that sounds harsh, but I'm I'm hurting because I lost a loved one. I get it. And I accept them gracefully. I accept all the I'm sorry, the what do you need me to do? I accept it, but it doesn't make me feel any better. This time I waited, waited till I was out of the window of harm, I'll say, to celebrate. So at about 20 weeks, I told people, I told my closest family and friends, This time, I refused to not take care of myself. I made sure that I set everything out. I did what I was supposed to do. I was even put on bed rest, so I wasn't even going to work. I was actually at home laying around pretty much all day because that's pretty much all I could do. I was going to do everything I could. I was determined. And I did, kind of, I think. Like, I still have doubts about that, like, because I lost this child, too. So I'm like, did I did I do everything? Or what, what else could I have done? You know, the, the questions that you have when somebody dies. I didn't do much except work before I was put on bed rest. But then there was still there was still a little bit of shame. And it wasn't even necessarily the church this time. It was more of a military. I was ashamed to tell my command that I was pregnant on sea duty. I felt shame for my command. I felt shame for myself. I felt upset with myself, too, because I'm like, man, I'm, I'm really on the right path here. I'm going to make what is called Navy Chief. I'm going to make E7. This pregnancy is taking me away from my career. Now, mind you, my career is what I held on to because that was the one constant and solid thing that I felt like I had all of the control over. I knew what I needed to do to get promoted. I was going to do that. But now I'm pregnant. And now I have to tell everybody. So when I finally told someone at my job, I cried right in the middle of an aircraft carrier hangar bay. Big, real crocodile sized tears. I felt ashamed that I was letting everybody down again. Every time I had to meet with someone, I would be fighting back the tears. When people would tell me not to worry about my job, I would still cry because that's all I had. That was what I could control. In my mind, My job was in my control. My uterus was out of my control. What if I lost my child? I was basically set up for success at work. What am I doing here? How did this happen again? I fought 
for my feelings of joy because I felt like this was finally my turn. Fast forward to April. Everything became a blur. So I'm not really 100% sure of all the timeline of the events, but I can give you a gist of what happened. I went to the hospital on a Friday night. I feel like it was a Friday night because I felt like I was having contractions. They monitored me and they sent me home. I went back the next day with the same complaint and I was admitted. I was nervous, but somewhat okay. I was 28 weeks pregnant. Lyric, which was my daughter's name, she could survive, right? That's the hope I held on to. I birthed her alone that Saturday night. No loved ones surrounding me, just a team of doctors that were prepared to rush my baby off as soon as she was born into this world. My ex decided to travel to Denver or Vegas, can't remember, the day I was admitted to the hospital. Guess he assumed I would be fine. Whatever. I would visit her every single day, two or three times. Sometimes I would be so tired that the nurses wouldn't let me drive home. I wanted to talk to every shift nurse, all the doctors, everything. I needed to know everything. I could not lose her. I could not lose her. She would go in and out of doing good and constantly needed to be monitored. I would hold her and be so damn proud. I am a mom. For sure this time, look at, look at here. I got this baby. I'm a mom. No question. I'm holding my baby girl. I brought her outfits to go home in. I bought her crib, everything. I was ready. On the morning of April 3rd, 2013, the NICU doctor called me and said, Miss Bird, that was my maiden name. You need to get here as fast as you can. My ex drove me. I was not in the right mind to drive. I don't know what I was thinking, but that phone call let me know that it was not good. Once I got there, Lyric was coding. The doctors asked if they could do CPR. Absolutely. Do whatever you got. Absolutely. Yes, do it. That was my words. Do it. Do it. Do it. And she was fine. Then she coded again. Then the doctor said, right now she has a stage four brain bleed and she wasn't breathing on her own. With or without assistance, she just wasn't breathing. What do you want to do? I'm thinking, me, I have to make this decision. If I have to make the decision, you better keep trying. Keep trying. More CPR? Same question again. I looked at my ex and he just stared at me too. We had absolutely no clue what to do. None whatsoever. So I went inside myself, one of the hardest things I had to do, and I thought about her. I thought about Lyric. Her brain bleed, her early birth, her issues breathing, her possible necrosis, her current sepsis, which was what was causing her body to shut down. I thought about her life. What would it be? Would it be good or bad? How would she live? How would I live? What would be the outcome if I told the doctors to keep her alive? I looked up as the doctors were monitoring her, and I thought to myself, how selfish would it be for me to keep her here? She wanted to go. Even in her little body, she wanted to go. I wanted her to stay. I couldn't lose another child. That's what I kept telling myself. But how long would she stay? I don't know where my strength came from, I don't even know if it was strength at all. The doctors asked again, what do you want me to do, Miss Bird? 
in a very low voice, eyes full of tears, I said, let her go. The doctor double-checked. If she codes again, do you want me to perform CPR? I said, no, let her go. I don't know what time it was. I just know it was morning. The monitor was still beeping when they handed her to me. After about a minute, the rapid beeping turned into a long, solid beep. The doctor checked her pulse. He announced the time. Don't even ask me what time it was. I don't, I don't know. But I do remember his words. Lyric's heart has stopped. Lyric has passed away. The words were said so softly, but they rang out so loud in my head. Lyric has passed away. Lyric has passed away. Over and over and over. That's all I heard. Lyric has passed away. I lost another child. I'll never forget the first time I saw her outside of the hospital. She finally looked like a real baby when she was at the funeral home. She was so beautiful. I just wanted to stay there. I wanted her to wake up, cry, move, anything, anything, anything. I wanted to know that this wasn't really what was happening. I did not just lose another child. This one, the one that I held, the one that I watched move, the one that I talked to, the one that I sang to, the one that I named, the one that I looked at, the one that I felt, but it was real. And she was beautiful because the morticians did an amazing job, but she was dead and soon to be buried. Later on that year, my grandmother, Johnny Mae Napier, had a stroke and ended up in a nursing home. Everyone thought she would be coming home after rehab. Even me, she was a strong woman. But instead, she moved from the nursing home to the other side, which was hospice. I went home to Ohio, Cincinnati to be exact, about four times in a 10 to 12 month period. I was stationed in Virginia, so I would drive 10 hours there stay the weekend 10 hours back my last visit was in June 2014 and that would be the last time I saw Johnny May Napier alive she died June 23rd 2014 in the hospice little did I know losing my kids would render me the perfect person to usher my grandmother into the afterlife when I first arrived in Cincinnati they had just stopped feeding her and giving her liquids maybe a day or two before I arrived I walked in and everyone was gathered around. I walked right up to her and I said, Johnny Mae, loudly and jokingly, of course. You know, I just drove from Virginia, right? You know, this is my fourth trip up here in a year. You know how much money this is costing me. You owe me some money, old lady. She grunted. I knew that was her way of cussing me out, but she didn't have the words and I didn't care. I needed to know that she could still hear me and that she was still here. I knew if anybody could get a reaction out of Johnny May Napier, it was definitely going to be me. And it worked. The CNA who was taking care of her said that that was the first time my grandmother had made a sound or reacted to anything in about two weeks. That was also the last reaction anyone would ever get from her. As I was preparing to go back to Virginia, I went to say my final goodbyes because I knew it wouldn't be long. One of my aunts was there, 
and she pulled me outside and asked me to tell my grandmother that it was okay and that I was okay. And I'm like, what? She said that she thought my grandmother was waiting for me because we had such a rough relationship growing up. Rough or not, I am who I am because of Johnny May. At first, I was confused about what she was telling me. Like, are you telling me to tell my grandma that I'm okay so she can die? Is that what you're asking me? She said, no, but I think she needs to know that you're okay. She's holding on and no one knows why. And I'm pretty sure it's because of you. So I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever, sure. I went in and I asked the CNA to leave so I could have a moment alone. That moment turned into 15 or 20 minutes. And that time I let my grandmother know that I was okay and that everybody else was okay too. Some of my family was asking her to stay, which is normal. Nobody wants to lose a loved one. I let her know that I didn't blame her for anything at all, not one single thing in my life. I didn't blame her, and I let her know that. I talked, and I paused, like she could or even would respond. I don't know what all I said or where the words came from, but I do know that at the end I said, Grandma, I have to go now, and you do too. I have to go home. And you do too. I'll see you again, but it won't be here. Grandpa and my kids are waiting for you, so you have to go now. You have to go now. I kissed her on her forehead, which was weird because I don't really remember receiving a lot of affection from my grandmother growing up. Then I said, bye, Grandma. I love you. I'll see you later, okay? I was in the car heading to Newport on the levee for lunch with a friend when my aunt called. Hysterically screaming. Grandma just died, she said. The hospice called and said, Mommy is dead. I knew it was coming. But even when you know death is coming, you can never really be prepared for it. I didn't know what to do. I said my goodbyes. I have this thing about trying to carry on like everything is okay. So I went to lunch. What else do I do? I can't bring her back. I couldn't sit still when I was eating. I had to go back. I let my friend know, I'm sorry I cut this lunch date short. I have to go be with my family. And I left. I went back to the hospice. That same year, I called the cemetery where my grandparents were buried to inquire about a plot for my mother. I learned then that they had a payment plan. So I started paying for my mother's plot. It's paid off now. She's still here, living, kicking, fighting, bothering me. But she has a plot, and that plot is two spaces down from my grandparents. She knows this, and she's fine with it because I let her know this. She also has funeral insurance, which is almost paid off. I don't want my mom's death to be like my daughter lyrics. I wasn't able to begin to grieve because I had to go about the business of burying my daughter. I was almost taken advantage of because I just wanted to find somewhere to bury my kid so that she could finally rest. I don't want to be mourning while trying to make extremely important decisions like where to bury my mom or where her funeral is going to be. Even with life insurance, you have the money there, but those decisions still have to be made if you didn't plan ahead. I also chose funeral insurance because I just want to bury my mom and give her a beautiful ceremony. I don't want to get rich. I don't need it. I'll survive. This is me and my journey to death dueling unofficially. 
And this is exactly what I was trying to do in 2013 when Lyric died. But I had no direction. Didn't even know how to explain what I was trying to do without freaking people out. I didn't even know what it was called or technically what I was doing for my own family would be considered part of end of life planning or death dueling. Now my aunt is planning her own funeral and burial as well. And last but not least, how did I become an official death doula? Well, this may sound crazy to some, but completely normal to others. I had a dream and the words death doula kept coming up. Me being who I am, I'm like, what the heck? Uh-uh, nope, 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 nope. Death doula, nope. Completely ignored the words. The voice in those words never went away, though. It's crazy how when life calls you, life calls you. So I listened and I inquired. I asked my spiritual circle, what in the world is this death doula thing that I keep hearing in my head? Surprisingly, a lot of them knew about it. And there was a death doula in my circle and one that was aspiring to become a death doula. Once it was clearly explained to me, I got super excited. I'm talking like jumping for joy. I made sure that I learned everything that I needed to know because this was exactly what I was trying to do in 2013 when everyone was shy away because I didn't know how to explain it without scaring people. And then nobody else really even knew what it was. It's a fairly new trade by name, not by action. People have been helping people while they're dying since life began. So it's not a new thing. But now I had a name to it. Death doula. I began to research. I began to hook up with people who were already working. I started volunteering at hospice. I started sitting bedside with people who were dying. I was at patients' homes sitting with them. Didn't matter. I needed to be side by side with these people so they weren't alone. I took a few courses, made sure I had a solid foundation, became NIDA proficient, and here I am, Death Doula Jen.